I needed to go deeper and I needed to stress it more than just putting a rhythm on the board and doing some Kodai hand signs and echo patterns that we really needed to to make it a core part of our rehearsal. What I discovered was by by putting all of this curriculum in a in a method, it gave those tools to all of the students, including the ones who maybe weren't the stars. And it and by breaking it down into little chunks, little step by step, uh, they were able to grasp it and become successful. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Welcome singers and singing teachers to the Sing, Coach, Conduct podcast. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison, and I'm so thankful you are joining me and our incredible guests as together we explore the stories and wisdom that make us better musicians, teachers, and people. In this episode, I have the great privilege of speaking with Emily Crocker, who is known throughout the United States for her work with children's choirs and also for her compositions and arrangements that have been enjoyed by choirs for decades. She has been a mentor to others, an inspirational teacher and conductor, and a leading advocate for music literacy. In this episode, Emily talks about the importance of music literacy, her newest project, Sound Patterns, published by Hal Leonard, which breaks down the process of sight reading that is both accessible and fun for students. She tells stories of growing up as a child of the 60s, the joys of teaching middle school, the most important things she learned from her study with the Kodai method, and so much more. Enjoy. You are nationally recognized for many things that you have done in teaching and music, composing. You and you've worked for Hal Leonard for was it 29 years as the the vice president of uh, my my title eventually was uh, vice president of choral publications. So you are a woman of many different <laughs> talents. And um, so tell me, what do you think it is about your work with children's choirs that makes you nationally recognized? Well, I'm not sure. I, I was actually thinking <laughs> about this uh, and, and, and sort of thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, at the time that children's choirs, of course, there have always been children's choirs, but, you know, in the 80s, early 80s, um, they came to prominence uh, nationally, I think, through the work of uh, Jean Ashworth Bartle from Toronto Children's Choir, Doreen Rao, Mary Getze, some mm -hmm. of these wonderful, uh, wonderful conductors and, uh, and uh, teachers. And uh, so before long, uh, you, you noticed that there were children's choirs kind of popping up all over the place. And I had left teaching by then. I was in Milwaukee, and I was curious as to why there wasn't a children's choir in Milwaukee. And and so I I began uh, you know kind of talking to people and and seeing where their, the interest might be. And I, I, you know there had been children's choirs. They had sort of died died off or fizzled or what whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess I was a little cheeky about it, but we, we decided <laughs> to just jump right in. And, uh, um, and so we, we ended up with, um, 
you know, like 20, 25 kids the, f the first fall. And, uh, and, we, and, and we kept them. We gave a concert in December. And then each year we just kept adding more and more kids. And uh, they, it was like they would tell their friends and they would, uh, or, or teachers would hear us at convention or whatever. Now why they came, I don't know. I, I like to think it was because they were getting a, a good experience. They were uh, gaining uh, uh, skills, but mostly I think that um, that that my work with children's choir was successful because I tried to make it fun, mm. and so that it was not like a like a you know sort of a real environment that uh, that kids would not thrive in. Mm -hmm. So we tried to make it fun. Uh, and mo you know, mostly they, they just loved singing with their friends and being with their friends. And, and then they, they loved the experience of singing, uh, great music in great places. We always tried to give our concerts in beautiful locations or we, we performed with, uh, you know, with other ensembles. So I think that's why I was successful. I, I also tried from the earliest days, I tried to make. I, I tried to not treat children um, in any kind of condescending way. I like to mm. think of them as not as little adults, but just, you know, I tried to be as authentic as I could with them. And I think they appreciated that. I think their parents appreciated that, you know, that they weren't going to get belittled or embarrassed somehow in front of their friends in, a, in, in, the, in the choir setting. So... I guess fun and friendship and lots of laughter and good music, those were the things that I think set my groups, maybe set them apart in, in, in the whole scheme of things. So, oh, That's awesome. So from the organizational standpoint of things, how did you get the word out that you were starting this choir? For people that are, you know, maybe interested in doing something like that, uh, yeah, how did you get that? off the ground and get those kids to show up? Well, it was a different time, of course. Uh, nowadays we have, uh, we have social media. In some ways it's more difficult now because there's a lot of distractions on social media. And uh, I mean, we, we, we were really old school. We, we set out, uh, we set out, we got together, my little steering committee, and we wrote, and we wrote down all the names of all the people we knew in town. And it, it ended up being like, you know, two or 300 people that were sort of key people in the music community or the education community. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, literally went to the uh, phone book and found their addresses and, and sent out postcards and invited them to a, a, a reception. And um, my company, Hal Leonard, allowed us to use a space in our building. And so uh, one afternoon, we, we, pro we probably sent out 250 invitations and we got about 50 responses. Wow. So uh, from those 50, uh, uh, we got that first group of 25 kids. Mm -hmm. and, and then, and then we used, you know, we used this, you can't do this anymore, but we got notices in the newspaper and we sent uh, letters, snail mail letters to teachers and, and gave them permission to copy our materials to send home with students they felt 
would uh, benefit from the experience. Now, you can do all of those things in a, in a more digital environment now, but I do think that the most important thing is to make connections with, uh, with, mm -hmm. the, with the schools and with the other organizations in town. Um, a lot, we got a lot of uh, uh, students who, uh, who, who were children of musicians uh, you know, in, in town who are looking for a, a really quality uh, experience for their younger children. So that's how it happened. Mm. So you said that you got 50 responses. Is that right, Emily? F 50 responses of uh, from the 250 letters that we sent out to key people in the community. Yes. Right. Great. And then you said from there you ended up with 20, your first 25. Yes. So did you go through a process of of choosing from those 50 or how did that work? Uh, oh, no, we got 50 adults, 50, 50 teachers and, and parents and key people. And oh, they, they put the word out and from that we got uh, calls from parents. And so then those, uh, we did not turn away any child um, mm. um, at that time. I think there might've been one or two boys. We weren't really prepared to, except uh, boys with changed voices at that time. So mm -hmm. we, we sent them on, you know, s to somewhere else so that they could have a good experience. And, uh, but, uh, so the 25 were uh, from, that, uh, from that initial outreach to the community. Okay. And you, you said you taught in the, in the public school system before this, and when you started the, the Milwaukee Choir, you had already stopped doing that. Is that correct? And you Yeah, I did not teach in public schools in Wisconsin. I, I taught public schools in Texas, where I'm okay. from and where I am today, uh, mm -hmm. where we've moved to. Uh, yeah, I taught in several uh, districts uh, in, the, in the Dallas area. So, What levels did you teach? I taught all levels. I taught K through you know, high school. So mostly I taught middle school. Mm. So that was my, <laughs> that was my claim to fame. <laughs> oh, I love middle school. I love middle school students. I know. Tell me, oh, tell me your favorite thing about teaching middle school kids. Well, you know, there's no filter, obviously. <laughs> uh, but the thing I like about middle school kids and, and, and I like it more than, I mean, the best thing about middle school kids is that they will go as far as you can take them. Mm. And a high school student, now this is a little bit, I don't know, some people might disagree with me on this, but <laughs> high school students tend to just go as far as they want to go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a middle school student, if you can get them on your, on your side mm -hmm. and, they don't, and, they, and they trust you, they will work like crazy to to achieve and uh and because and, and i think a lot of us if we think a lot of us music teachers now if we think back to where we got our spark for music education a lot of times it was middle school mm. there was a teacher at that level that gave us a sort of a special you know gave us some special interest or or uh, paid attention, or we just began to, we sort of began to emerge from our, from our shells at that point. So uh, uh, that's what I love about middle school. They're funny. They're just as funny as can be. <laughs> yes. And, and you can, you know, you can just, you come home and, and, and the most hilarious stories uh, can be shared over the dinner table at night because of what has <laughs> happened in, 
in the music room that day. <laughs> so is it true for you that that's, did you get your spark in middle school? You know, I have to say that is true. And there is a bit of a story here. Because, so if you'll bear with me. Oh, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, when I was in middle school, uh, my family had moved uh, to Oklahoma from Texas, and we actually moved around a little bit. And we ended up my um, eighth grade year in a little in a town, uh, Weatherford, Oklahoma. And at the, the same year, there was a woman who had graduated from Oklahoma City University in her first full year of teaching. And that woman was Joyce Eilers. Mm, and if, mm -hmm. and a lot of people, uh, uh, I mean, she's, she's sadly passed on now, but she was one of the first um, really well-known uh, composers and arrangers for, uh, for that level middle school music. And, uh, um, and she was there and it was her first year. Now she had not written a single piece of music at that point, mm -hmm. but she had a kind of a, a force of will, a force of personality that just made her bring her choirs to a, a quite a level. We had just a little wimpy choir there <laughs> and she turned it into a real powerhouse and she recruited all over the school till pretty much every kid in this little school was in some kind of choir. And um, so uh, she was something else and uh, she found out I could play the piano. So I was the accompanist and then she divided the choir into all dozens of little trios and quartets and whatever. She sent us all over town uh, by ourselves for uh, to <laughs> sing for Kiwanis and Rotary and everything else. I mean, it was a little town you could walk anywhere, but uh, so so. Af but after one year, she moved away and I moved away. Hmm. But uh, and I I never really had another choir teacher like her uh, in school. Hmm. Uh, and uh, later, I mean, just to jump ahead and finish the story, uh, later I saw some music that she had written, and it was. You know, it was it was so well written for uh, for kids that you know my third graders could sing in parts with that music, and so I said, okay, this has got to be the same Joyce Eilers, sure enough, and uh, we eventually reconnected, and she's the one who kind of uh, brought me into uh, uh, the publishing world. So mm. she had become an editor that by that time. So she. Uh, fantastic force of, uh, she was really sort of a force of nature, but she uh, dedicated her life to, to helping kids learn to sing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I was lucky, lucky to have her at the early stage. So she was the reason that you wanted to become a music educator. That was, well, I, I think she, she at that point um, kind of gave me an idea of, of, of what, is possible. I, I was actually more, uh, I played uh, the French horn and I, I, I anticipated being a band director. So mm. I kind of went through school toward that. Then when I got out, uh, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go into vocal music and it, it seemed at the time the best thing to do. And so um, 
that's what I did. It's amazing to me how many people I've spoken to, done interviews with that were going to be band directors. And then, (laughs) I mean, I'm one of them. My husband is one of them. And like so many people we've, so it just, it just cracks me up. And uh, I like to, to joke it, but in a serious way that, you know, that the band directors make the best choir directors or the people that were going to be. (laughs) Cause there's, yeah. yeah, there's something about having that instrumental background that I think uh, there's an advantage to, um, there, to that. There definitely is. I, th- I mean, I obviously had to, I, I, I didn't, I didn't sing badly, but I, when I went in, when I became a choir director, I then started taking, uh, I took some voice lessons and, and, uh, and vocal pedagogy and, and improved my singing to the level that I, I, that my choirs didn't sound sort of, you know, uh, honky or whatever. So, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, but I, no, I think, I think, uh, I think having that instrumental experience, um, was definitely an asset in Mm. in my choir directing. So, and I'm not afraid of instruments, you know, it's like (laughs) a lot of choir directors, when they stand in front of an orchestra, they don't know what to do or they're, they're hesitant, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I, I was a little more used to it. So, what would you say to someone um, who doesn't have experience and has to conduct, uh, you know, like a, a mass or a requiem? And um, mm-hmm. what what would you advice would you give them since they can't necessarily go back and all of a sudden have the experience <laughs> of being an instrumentalist? How could well, you calm yeah. them, Emily? How can you calm them down? <laughs> well, there are some books. I, I, if you, if, uh, it seems like Don Moses has one called, uh, I can't remember the title, but Donald Moses has one about uh, standing in front of an orchestra for choir directors. And just, there are a lot of things that you can do. There are graduate classes. I took a couple of graduate classes that were just on that subject of, and, and they would put a, they would put an ensemble together for the graduate class to have the experience of sort of experiencing that and standing in front. But if, even if you don't do that, if your school has an orchestra, uh, I would see, see if you could find something for strings and choir, even if it's a unison piece for the choir, and then, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, convince your orchestra director, director to collaborate with you and give you a chance to stand up in front of the orchestra. Uh, it, just the sound is, uh, is really different. And also the other thing is that you're usually really far away from your singers. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's something that most uh, choir directors are not used to. So you have to learn to really communicate with your conducting, and and your students, and and just your students listening to and singing with something that's not a keyboard, is going to affect them. So it, <laughs> it's a wonderful experience, absolutely wonderful, so for everybody. You've had quite a bit of experiences then conducting orchestras or having that full immersive experience with your choirs, with instrumentalists, with all of that. Yes. I've had, yes, I've had some experience. I, I got to conduct, uh, we used to, Milwaukee Children's Choir used to sing with the Milwaukee Symphony and uh, uh, their, uh, their pops concerts, uh, their pops Christmas concert. And a lot of times, the the guy uh, that uh, the pops conductor, you know, he he sort of had his his set of music, and so he he let me conduct the children in the orchestra. So you know you and you basically get like one run through. So you better be ready. So 
you really have to know your music. I mean, you have to know your music. Your score's got to be marked. You got to know where where the where the harp sits, where the trumpets are, and and you know <laughs> the timpani or whatever. You need to know all of that. So give yourself a chance by going ahead of time and and observing a rehearsal if you if you possibly can. So. Those are, that's my advice. <laughs> that's really good advice. Cause even that alone, knowing that when you show up to a rehearsal like that, this isn't time for you to be fixing vowels and like telling, you know, the sopranos to back off and <laughs> like things like that, um, yeah, that, right. yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be ready when you go in, but, but maybe not to get so bogged down with having to understand the instruments maybe per se. I think maybe people can get caught up in thinking they have to know how the instruments work or they're going to have to like teach something. And it's like, no, like it's music. Just it's it's music. Just show up. And, and, and like you said, you're not going to come to that rehearsal and then be teaching, uh, talking about vowels with your choirs at that point. Probably you should probably have already talked about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, Hey, so you are a, you're a child of the sixties. And I heard you talk about um, some of your musical influences, uh, Joni Mitchell, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, I would love to hear uh, a memory that you have about that music. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, one thing is different that, that, that our, our students, uh, and really students from the 90s on, probably don't, don't know, which is, which is that you know, you didn't have a lot of access to music. I mean, you had the radio, which was mostly AM radio. So you you listened to what what the radio station played. Um, and then, you know, uh, when a new album would come out, um, you know, somebody in your group of friends would go buy the album. We didn't all go buy the album, but one person would buy the album. Then we'd all go over to that person's house and sit around and play that album, you know, over and over and over until we learned all the songs. You had, you sort of pooled your music that way. So, uh, and, and you usually go, went to the person's house who had the best stereo system or hi-fi system, as we <laughs> called it. No, nobody had, very few people had music like in their bedroom. Uh, the, 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 the hi-fi equipment was in the, the family room. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you listened and the whole family listened with you. So that, that was kind of the main thing. I mean, I will say that, um, what I did at that time, I think it, uh, maybe led to my interest in, in composing was we decided to put together a little singing group, sort of a little mamas and papas kind of singing group. And I did the vocal arrangements. So uh, so we sang, uh, you know, Petula Clark and mamas and papas. And, you know, we sang some of those songs. And I just really, I just went down to the music store where they had the latest uh, pop sheet music and, and bought a copy of the sheet music. And then, you know, I arranged it for the, for our group to sing so <laughs> how, how old were you at the time that you were writing oh, I, I was in high school so probably you know 17 or so, so something like that 17 or 18 and then I, I kind of kept writing after that I kept writing arrangements for groups that I played with or that I was in or whatever so where did you learn how to do that I mean did you just have an intuition about it or was someone guiding you 
I did take some uh, lessons, uh, some piano lessons from a sort of a, uh, you know, a, a pop jazz instrument, a piano player. And he taught me how to, he taught me about chords. I had a regular piano teacher that I learned classical piano from. Mm. But then I took a few lessons to, to become a, uh, to, to be able to play, you know, from a lead sheet. Mm. And uh, so playing the piano was the biggest influence. And I just, you know, I just tried to, I got, got my sheet, got my manuscript paper and, and wrote it out. And if, if something didn't sound good, well, we, you know, we, we all discovered that pretty quickly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you learned a lot by writing these and listening and then revamping mm. and what a neat opportunity for you to do mm. that in such a, um, just sort of doing it for fun sort of way. I mean, at that time, did you have any idea that you were going to become, you know, Emily Crocker, the, the, <laughs> the great, you know, composer and arranger, right? I mean, did you have any inkling that that's what you were going to do with your life? No, not really. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life, but I, I you know, I knew I was going to go into music. Uh, and I, I anticipated being a, a teacher of some sort, you know, a band, I thought. But uh, the one other thing about, about sitting around with your friends is that people played guitars. Hmm. And so there was a lot of uh, sitting around singing, singing the Peter, Paul and Mary songs and, and, and sort of build, you know, sort of building that uh, organic harmony that they, that they, uh, that they sang. So, so we were used to doing that, um, mm -hmm. at, you know, in, in, uh, in our group of friends at mm -hmm. the time. Are you a mezzo soprano or a soprano, Emily? Well, uh, I'm, I was a soprano. I am not a singer now due to, <laughs> due to some vocal damage. So, uh, uh, but I, I did sing sort of a, more in a high soprano. So uh, I know it sounds, I don't sound like that now, but uh, that's what I was. <laughs> Are you willing to share a little bit more about, about your vocal damage? Well, yes, I, I'm happy to do that. It, it was nothing that I was doing that was uh, inappropriate or, you know, over talking or over singing or whatever. Uh, but I had um, thyroid issues and uh, the thyroid... There's some little nodules that grew on it that began to push my larynx. And so it, it created a system or a situation where the, um, the, the vocal folds would not connect completely. And mm -hmm. so it was letting, letting a little air through when I sang. And so I, was, I sounded hoarse all the time. And also there were, there were other symptoms that were just, just made it sort of hard to uh, function. Um, tiredness, fatigue, that sort of thing, weakness. And so eventually I went to a bunch of doctors and finally they just said, well, we need to remove your thyroid. So they did uh, surgically and, um, and I've taken medicine ever since or, you know, uh, thyroid uh, supplements and I have no, no problem. Uh, it, it keeps it, you know, completely regulated, but I never really gained my, my singing voice, um, I can sing, but not, not very high, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sort of in that sort of, um, mezzo tenor range. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, they, and they explained it to me it's, it's really my age because when you, and if you've had a lot, if you've had a disruption to your singing in the way that I did, your brain learn, your brain compensates for that by singing a different way. 
So once the, the, the stimulus was gone, the brain would have needed to uh, sort of relearn the, 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 the singing pathways. And I probably could have done it if I'd uh, had a specialist vocal teacher at the time. But it, I was kind of near the end of my career anyway, so I just, I didn't do it, uh, and I've just focused, I, I can c still conduct a choir, I can't really model for the sopranos, but I can, I can play the piano, and I can, uh, I can sing down an octave or whatever, so they can get the idea, but uh, that's what happened, uh, but I, I really do recommend that any teacher that has any kind of hoarseness or uh, laryngitis or whatever that they don't ignore it that they that they follow up on it and that they um, you know get it get it to get it nipped in the bud mm. thank you so much for saying that you know I, I've heard so often that uh, women have trouble with you know their thyroid but I, I never knew that it could affect your voice in that way that's this is a new information that I'm getting at this point so um, mm. for anyone that's listening to this and and maybe uh, it may be helpful to somebody who doesn't even realize how those two things connect. So thank you for being so open mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. Um, so you are a huge advocate of music literacy. <laughs> and so um, why is music literacy so important in the classroom? Well, it legitimizes our, our, all of our work. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to give a, clarinet to a kid and not teach them how to read the notes on the staff. But, but we sort of do that, uh, or, you know, in, in many cases, uh, choirs can learn to sing quite well without really being, um, uh, have, having a good knowledge of, of music notation and, and, uh, and uh, reading, you know, connecting sound with symbol. I learned early on that, um, I needed to go deeper and I needed to stress it more than just putting a rhythm on the board and doing some Kodai hand signs and echo patterns that we really needed to to make it a core part of our rehearsal. So early on, I mean back you know when I was still teaching middle school uh, in the uh, uh, you know in the uh, 1980s um, I began with I began first with uh, writing with Joyce Eilers to create a method, if you will, uh, for uh, for introducing uh, uh, sight reading in the choral classroom. And I've done that. I've worked on it and hopefully refined it over the years. I've just written some new books. Um, two of them are out, and there's one in preparation. Uh, sound patterns, hmm. uh, sequential sight reading in the choral classroom, and sound patterns for changing voice, which is for uh, middle school uh, tenors and basses, really cambiata and new baritone. But there's uh, where where we where we basically start with rhythm and pitch separate, and step by step build their skills uh, in sight reading. Uh, melodies, exercises, and actual songs. I think it was, I, I th that was the one thing that Joyce really emphasized. She says, they've got to sing real music. 
They can't just sing little ditties and little exercises all the time. Otherwise, they won't make the connection. Mm-hmm. And and I, I truly believe it. I've, I've seen it work successfully. We all have students in our classrooms who are, you know, they're kind of the little stars. Maybe they take piano or maybe they just got really super good ears or whatever. And they, they're, they're good, strong singers and they they kind of lead everybody else through it. And then we have, we have students who, are, who, who have less experience. Well, what I discovered was by, by putting all of this curriculum in a, in a method, it gave those tools to all of the students, including the ones who maybe weren't the stars. Mm-hmm. And, it, and by breaking it down into little chunks, little step-by-step, uh, they were able to grasp it and become successful. So I could see that a student that might not have be, been a super leader before was building those same skills. And it was, mm. it was sort of lifting up, it was lifting up all the students to, to a, 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 a level of achievement in sight reading and skill. Not only that, I discovered that by, by, teaching, uh, by teaching pitch reading and rhythm reading, in the way that these these methods do, it was improving their pitches, their pitch um, uh, matching skills. Mm, so mm-hmm. a kid that that maybe hadn't had been sort of a, you know, a little bit of a growler in or or not consistent with matching pitch, was becoming more successful. Mm. It also, um, speaking of of uh, uh, of saving your voice, I didn't sing with them. So they had to do all the singing themselves. Ah, I mean, except okay. except for echoing, you know, when we yeah. when you're introducing pitch pitch uh, certain pitch patterns, but I they had to do it themselves, and uh, so I didn't. I all I would do is wh- I'd get them going. I'd walk around the room, smile and nod. I I consider that's the best <laughs> form of teaching is just to is to just be encouraging to them. Mm. So I just I just found it to be. Um, just a super boost to my program mm. and not just to my top choir, but to really to all my choirs. So hopefully other people will, <laughs> will see the same. <laughs> it's great. It's so great. And you know, I'm sure that you've heard this. Well, I say that, but you probably have heard this, this concern of we only have so much time in the classroom. I don't know if I have time to sight read every day or what have you. You know, what would you say to that person? Have you heard that before, Emily? Have you? Oh, heard yes. So- okay. Oh, yeah. I okay. used to think it myself. I used to think it, you know, and uh, uh, but then I began to, I realized that I couldn't afford to not do it. So let's say you, I mean, if you have a 30 minute class, well, yeah, you're not going to give up more than five minutes. But if you have your materials all organized in a, in a easy to access uh, format, which hopefully my books do that for you. Um, say the name uh, of your books to oh. your method books. <laughs> Sound patterns. Sound patterns. Yeah, okay. published by Hal Leonard. So, uh, anyway, to 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 have the materials easy at hand, so that either either quickly they turn to the page or you project it on the screen, 
and uh, and you have a you have a quick little demonstration. You do a few little exercises, and then you jump right into whatever the sight reading uh, for the day is. And may, maybe that's just a couple of lines, which you would read the rhythm, and then and then uh, audiate the pitches, and then sing aloud, and mm-hmm. maybe sing again just to uh, reinforce. Or maybe you're working, maybe you get to the end of the chapter and there's a song. You might take a few days to do the song because, you know, uh, uh, you can't do it. You don't necessarily have to do it all in one day. Just break it up. And it also, it doesn't hurt to repeat things. So if if you don't have a lot of time that day, just go back and do something you did before. Mm-hmm. It's It doesn't it doesn't set you back. So I would say if, if you had a, you know, a class of 45 to 50 minute class, which I think is fairly common in middle school. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would say 10 to 15 minutes is going to be just about right. You do, mm-hmm. do some little warm ups, jump into sight reading, and then move into your. You'll find they'll, the sight reading will focus them. Mm-hmm. It will focus them and they'll be ready and then to, to work on any uh, of, of the repertoire that you've selected for that day. And of course, then you know it, it's always good to to extract uh, elements of your uh, performance repertoire to to sight read or to focus on a particular uh, notational element or, or or harmonic element or something as well. Mm. It's such a good point you make about the focusing because I've always used the reasoning of. Well, the better they read, then the more you're actually going to be able to do when you get into the literature. But, but just even the point of the focus alone is just creates this exponential progress in your room, like the, the ability for them to achieve so much more in a limited amount of time. So that's just great, great advice. Thank you so much. That's, uh, it's just like so much gold. You're saying so, so many important <laughs> things. And, um, and especially right now when teachers feel even more limited because now they're dealing with COVID restrictions. Now they're dealing with, I mean, there's just, it just keeps piling on. It's nothing like it was, um, you know, when, when mm-hmm. I was like, I want to be a music teacher and I, I do not regret that. Um, and, but also I'm no longer in the public school system. I'm an administrator, music director at a church, but my husband is still doing it. And so I hear about it every day and, um, they just want to make music and, and inspire and help kids Mm -hmm. to be better. And, um, often you just have to get through so much stuff to get to the work that you're really trying to do. Like you have to get through the job (laughs) to get to the work. Right. Um, so it's just great. Uh, so you, you have a, a vocal pedagogy degree. Is that from Texas women's university? Is that correct? Uh, no, I only took a course in vocal pedagogy. Uh, so yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, so, um, when you took that course, was there anything that surprised you or that you learned that made you realize, oh, I should be doing this differently in the choral classroom because I know that um, oftentimes you have choir directors and you have voice teachers. Sometimes there tends to be this lack of, of vocal pedagogy knowledge. And so we end up doing the things that, you know, we understand to be the choir things that we do, but isn't necessarily focused on on the voice itself. So is there anything that you would offer about what you learned from that course or about what you know about vocal pedagogy and using that? Well, I, I felt like I was uh, behind everybody else because I wasn't a vocal major in college. 
So I, I always sort of felt like, well, I really don't know, so maybe I better go find out. So I took vocal pedagogy, which of course gives you all the science and uh, that sort of thing. But I would also say that I took some uh, wonderful classes uh, at Westminster Choir College with Frauke Haussmann, who um, she was the she was a so assistant to Wilhelm Amann, who was a the great German German conductor. Anyway, she she was a wonderful she she called herself a voice builder, mm. and so she would go in prior to uh, the choral rehearsal and prepare the choir vocally for for rehearsal, and. Um, so I took classes from her. I took I took uh, voice building from her in a summer course. I also took conducting, and I think I took something else. I went back like three three years in a row to to uh, Westminster for that. Uh, she has some books, and she has some. I think there maybe are some videos of her working, but I learned a great deal from her. And then what I tried to do was I tried to go back into my, you know. From her, I, I tried to go back into my seventh and eighth grade treble choir classes and 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 put it in a context that would Im, would improve their singing, and it really did. Um, there are wonderful now. Uh, of, of course, you know you've got people like Henry Leck and some of these other wonderful uh, Sandra Snow and other wonderful teacher conductors artists. Uh, to help you, uh, uh, help you develop that that vocal tone quality. Mm. That's what I. That's why I took the classes that I did, um, and I have incorporated them as much as I, as I as much as I could in uh, in in my choral conducting. Mm -hmm. Again, it's it, you know it comes down to breath, vowels, posture, uh, resonance. You know all those things. And, uh, and, and then just having the, that was the great thing about Frauke. She, she, she would know, oh, what we need is more resonance here. We need mm -hmm. a brighter sound. And then she had all these little sort of wonderful techniques, really for amateurs, not for professional singers at all, uh, just to, you know, make this one little adjustment uh, in your singing. And suddenly the pitch uh, cleans itself right up and comes right into pitch. And so... Um, and and I, I used it back then. I could still sing, so I, I used I, I did modeling for the for my choirs and mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and they they sort of sounded like I did, which was kind of a light sound, which is exactly what you're looking for in a middle school anyway. So mm. light and natural. That's what I like to hear <laughs> in a in a choir. And and my children's choirs, you can you can find them online and uh, you, when you hear them you'll say well well that's a pleasant sound that's a nice sound but they don't sound like an english boy choir mm. i let them sing like like american kids mm -hmm. but with you know with quality vowels and uh, and production hmm. so i think another thing that's um can be intimidating is kodai and so you have taking courses in that as well or are you certified I, yeah i'm or? not i am not certified i mm -hmm. i started out uh maybe taking the first level and then i kind of shifted gears because i be, became more of a um you know i went more into choral conducting and composing um but uh, i think the thing that uh, i mean there are some fantastic kodai teachers out there and te and artists composers and um and the like I think the 
the greatest thing I learned from Kodai study was how to sequence a lesson and how to break the material down into simple steps that are in the exact right order for mm. your students to be successful. So I, I encourage, I encourage that for that alone. I encourage, uh, to study in, uh, uh, Kodai techniques, whether, whether it's an introductory course or the full, the full three levels, uh, it, 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 it will just make you a better teacher and make you think of, of, of lesson planning in a very, very organized and strategic way. I've never thought about that in relation to um, planning your, like lesson planning. That is very interesting. So would, do you have a suggestion as to um, like a great workshop or great materials or anything? <laughs> well, I, I, have, I, I haven't, I've been out of it for a while, but, but uh, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful professor and a good friend of mine, Susan Brumfield. She's at uh, Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, and she's got, she has, she has wonderful materials. Um, uh, they're, they're under the brand First We Sing, and uh, she does workshops in various places around the country, and I think also there in uh, West Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I would hi highly suggest that you, you know, if people are interested to check, at least check out our materials. Mm -hmm. um, I have them all and I, I refer, for, refer to them from time to time. Hmm. But I, I think, you know, the, the, the thing I, Joyce used to say this, she said, uh, students can learn what you can teach. And then I would add to that, you can teach what you can break into, into sequential steps. So, mm -hmm. you know, know what to do first, what to say first. Sometimes you just throw too much at them and they get, get all confused. But <laughs> if, you, if you start with this and then you add this, you know, you're adding levels, you're adding uh, uh, steps uh, to the understanding. You'll, if you pay attention to your students, they'll teach you what they need to know. So. <laughs> mm. Oh, it's so, that's so great. So you're really interested in supporting young musicians. Um, and uh, you had talked to me a little bit about uh, kind of filling in these gaps where there's a deficit for young people, especially during this pandemic. So can you talk to me about what are your, your current projects and goals? You know, what, what do you want to do now at this point oh. in your career? Well, at this point, um, I'm interested in, um, well, of course, I like to support the music in my own community. So uh, the Fort Worth schools, I, I try, to, try to be helpful where I can there. Uh, and in terms of workshops or clinics or adjudication or whatever they need me to do, I'm happy to do it. Um, we started a Emerging Composers competition this last year with uh with texas choral directors and uh it's it's called the emily crocker emerging Com composer award or something <laughs> like that so anyway uh, i awesome. was involved with that and mm -hmm. uh, support that and uh we we just uh we just awarded our first um, composer award to Braden Ayers, who wrote a lovely piece performed at texas choral directors and it's just been released through hal leonard so we're looking forward to continuing that. I'm, I may be doing more pieces in this Emerging Composer series. That is, I'm looking for manuscripts of, uh, from young composers, composers under the age of, uh, say, 35, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, would, like to, uh, would like to have a wider audience. Um, 
So that's, that's what I'm doing at, at the present time. How can people get in contact with you, Emily? Well, uh, the, the easiest thing is uh, there's a, through my website, um, there's a contact button there, and my website is emilycrockermusic.com. And so if you go there, uh, there'll be a way to contact me. Also, I've got all my music sort of organized by voicing. So if you're looking for a a two-part piece or a tenor bass piece or a three-part mixed or whatever, they're all divided that way. You can see kind of what I've been doing. All my sight reading uh, music is there also. Mm-hmm. and uh, some videos of uh, tutorials and that sort of thing. So emilycrockermusic.com. What are you most proud of? <laughs> you know, um, I'm proud that um, at Hal Leonard, I feel like we, we really built a, uh, a wonderful group of composers and arrangers um, and, uh, and, and there's a great legacy, a, a great catalog, and a, a great catalog of concert music and popular music alike. Um, I'm also just, I'm just happy that, that so many of my students and former students have, have good memories of singing together in choir. A lot of them have become teachers themselves. Mm-hmm. And even the ones who haven't become teachers are, are having families and their their kids are uh, are are singing in uh, in choirs and and studying music. So I just I just love that. Um, so I'm, I guess I would say I'm most proud of that. I'm proud that um, that my own music has been has found a uh, uh, an acceptance of the pieces that I've written. A lot of pieces that uh, and and still to this day. So. Uh, some of the pieces I wrote, you know, 40 years ago are still being performed today. Mm. What a beautiful legacy. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Is it a little surreal? Do you, do you ever go like? Yes. Yes. Uh, The other day somebody wrote, they said something about the legendary Emily Crocker. And I just thought, "Hmm, legendary. Okay. Oh, just take it in, though. Take it in, you I know. know. I know take I know, it I know. in. It's yeah. just wonderful. Is yeah. there um, is there any question you wish I would have asked you, or anything that you want to share as a final? You know, it's just it was it was wonderful to speak with you today, Megan. I'm I'm just so fortunate to have so many. Uh, I would say friends around the country, not fans, but friends. Uh, and I lo- I love to hear from people on on Facebook. I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm not very active on Instagram, but I am there too. So, <laughs> but I hope, I hope to hear from, uh, if, if people are performing my music or if they just have a question they'd like to ask me or a complaint or whatever, I'd, I'm happy to hear it. Mm, that is so wonderful. I am so grateful to have spent time with you today, Emily. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.